Thanks very much, Roma, for that uh, wonderful introduction. I hope I'm not going to disappoint your audience. Um, good evening. Uh, first of all, it's a really great pleasure for me uh, to be at Stanford. Um, I visited Stanford a uh, very long time ago uh, when I was uh, much younger than I am today and I had plenty of hair and um, I, I did some research at the Hoover Institute and um, so actually this is my third visit to Stanford. I'm extremely thankful to Professor Milani and of course Professor, my very good friend Professor Heikenberry and um, as well as the uh, Hamid and uh, Christine Muradam program in Iranian studies, which I think is doing a wonderful uh, job, and I'm very, very thankful for the invitation that uh, has been extended to me. My brief tonight is Iran, the Islamic Republic's resilience under pressure. I wouldn't be telling you something new to claim that the Iranian Republic or the Islamic Republic of Iran has been at the forefront of international controversy ever since its advent four decades ago. It has weathered many domestic and foreign policy challenges and continued to labor under many more. Its ideological dispositions, policy actions, and growing influence have seriously challenged the interests of the United States and America's regional allies, most importantly, Israel and Saudi Arabia. The Islamic Republic has so far remained resilient and acted as a critical regional player. Yet its resilience is coming under enormous pressure, leading some observers once again to question its durability. President Donald Trump has vowed to contain the Islamic Republic. It has view, he has viewed it as a major threat to regional and global stability and security and as a, uh, a supporter of international terrorism. This led President Trump in May 2018 to, do, to withdraw the United States from the landmark 14th of July 2015 multilateral nuclear agreement, which is officially known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPO, between Iran and the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council plus Germany. Under the nuclear deal, Iran had agreed to substantially downgrade its nuclear program and return for the lifting of all nuclear-related United Nations and U.S. sanctions. President Trump has re uh, reversed uh, President Barack Obama's conciliatory policy, imposing a raft of unprecedentedly harsh sanctions to bring about either a change of regime or a modification of its behavior. While dispensing overwhelming support for Israel and escalating arms sales to Saudi Arabia and some of its Gulf allies, it has a strongly backed cooperation between Israel and the Arab states, led by Saudi Arabia and Egypt, as a counter to Iran. Meanwhile, in a typically contradictory manner, uh, President Trump has decided to end or substantially reduce America's military involvement in Syria and Afghanistan, where the Islamic Republic of Iran has secured a strong regional leverage. The question is, will the President's new nationalist approach work? The, the, the United States policy of containing Iran, revived by uh, President Trump, 
dates back to the Iranian Revolution of 1978-79. The revolution saw the U.S. losing a significant ally in a strategically vital oil-rich region. The United States had maintained a patron-client relationship with Iran since 1953, when the CIA orchestrated a coup that deposed the democratically elected nationalist Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstalled the ousted Shah Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi to govern Iran at America's behest. This event and the autocratic rule that the Shah inaugurated were resented in Iran as well as in the Soviet Union and among radical Arab nationalist forces led by Egypt's radical pan-Arabist nationalist leader Jamal Abdel Nasser which objected to the coup as an American hegemonic grab in the height of the Cold War. The backlash against the Shah's rule came, at least partly, in the form of the Iranian Revolution 25 years later. The revolution began as a popular mobilization for reform, but culminated in the overthrow of the Shah's monarchy and its replacement with an Islamic regime under the leadership of the Shah's chief religious and political opponent, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. As a prominent radical Shia cleric, Khomeini established a theopolitical order at home and adopted a foreign policy of neither East nor West, but pro-Islamic and in opposition to the two hegemonic powers of the Cold War. Khomeini nurtured a two-tier system of Islamic governance, with one representing the sovereignty of God and another the sovereignty of people. He adopted a jihadi or combative and ishtihadi or reformist approach to building an Iran that would be Islamic, informed very much by a Shia interpretation of Islam, but nonetheless a strong and modern Islamic republic. He locked horns with the United States as the dominant power in the Middle East and called for the destruction of Israel and popular overthrow of Sunni-dominated Jews-backed and authoritarian Arab regimes in the region. Khomeini had no time for godless Soviet communism either. He opposed the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan while still maintaining good relations with Moscow as he did with Beijing and New Delhi all in the hope of countering the United States. A tougher blow to US-Iranian relations came with the hostage crisis when a group of pro-Khomeini militants overrun the US Embassy in Tehran on November 4, 1979, and held 52 of the embassy's personnel hostage for 444 years, uh, 44 days. This event saw an acrimonious exchange between the faithful President Jimmy Carter and Khomeini, calling each other respectively Anata and Yazid. And Yazid was the one who killed the third Imam or leader of the Shia sect in Islam, that is Imam Hussein, who was the grandson of Prophet Muhammad, and this event took place in 680 AD. Washington cut off all ties with Iran, imposed sanctions and instigated a policy of containment intended to isolate America's erstwhile ally. The hostage episode and Khomeini's defined radical Islamism left an indelible impact on the American public and policymakers and cemented their view of Iran as the poster child of Islamic fundamentalism.
The domestic turmoil and regional and international hostility that Khomeini's rhetoric and actions generated cast serious doubt on the durability of his Islamic regime. Yet the Republic managed to survive the hostage crisis and a series of other challenges, including a devastating war with Iraq lasting from 1980 to 88, which was initiated by Saddam Hussein, who was backed by the United States and its Arab allies. It also the regime also endured the regional isolation resulting from burgeoning ties between the United States and Saudi Arabia and its allies in the Saudi-led Gulf Cooperation Council, which was formed in 1981 in conjunction with the U.S. strategy of containment. When Khomeini died in mid-1989, he left behind a jihadi-ishtihadi political paradigm that endowed the Islamic State with a capability to renew and reinvent itself under changing circumstances and, and to deal effectively with any internal and external threats. This paradigm governs Iranian politics to date. Under Khomeini's successor, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the regime has succeeded in expanding its soft and hard power capabilities including forging a transnational network of sectarian and geopolitical supporters. Its allies include, at the sub-national level, the Lebanese Shia Hezbollah, the Iraqi Shia militias and the political actors, the Yemeni Houthis, affiliated sectarian groups in Afghanistan and receptive Sunni Palestinian organizations, and at the national level, the Syrian regime. These forces from formed the pillars of Tehran's regional security architecture, which stretches from Afghanistan to Lebanon and is intended to deter any outside threat within an asymmetrical warfare strategy that Iran has developed. The Islamic Republic has not been solely responsible for its expanding regional influence. It has, in large part, deftly exploited the opportunities that American strategic miscalculations have created. Tehran has reaped substantial benefits from the U.S. interventions in Afghanistan from 2001 and Iraq from 2003, which toppled two of Iran's hostile neighboring forces, the radical Sunni Islamic Taliban and the pan-Arab secularist regime of Saddam Hussein, respectively. America's subsequent failure to bring peace and stability to Afghanistan and Iraq created a vacuum that Iran has partly filled. The U.S. withdrawal from Iraq at the end of 2011 left behind a still ill-equipped to face the, the political and security challenges that the invasion had created. This, together with the Syrian turmoil, was a significant factor in the rise of the so-called Islamic State at the frontiers of Iraq and Syria from July 2014 which obliged the United States to redeploy its forces to combat the unprecedented terrorist threat. America's intervention, however, aided Iran by weakening a powerful force with, milit with a militantly anti-Shia, anti-Iranian stance. Without the U.S. and allied military intervention, Iran and its Iraqi affiliates would have struggled to, to defeat the Islamic State. Washington's inability or unwillingness to intervene in the Syrian conflict to depose Bashar al-Assad's rule has delivered a further victory to Iran. 
Iran's support of the Assad regime began shortly after the outbreak of the anti-regime popular uprisings in 2011, but it faced a mounting task against the regime's opponents. While Tehran has built a strong defensive capability, it lacks the capacity to engage in large-scale military operations outside its borders. President Obama's back down from punishing Damascus over its alleged use of chemical weapons in 2013 provided Tehran with an opportunity to escalate its involvement in Syria. Yet even without the fear of American retaliation, Tehran was ill-positioned to salvage the Assad regime alone. The costs of, of Iran's Syrian adventure were becoming exorbitant, with support to the Assad regime amounting to five to six billion dollars annually, in addition to hundreds of millions of dollars going to Hezbollah and its fighters every year. Meanwhile, Iran's elite Quds force, forces were sustaining in, in, uh, increased casualties despite Iran's deployment of many mercenaries from other Shia minorities in the region, especially from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Despite its historical distrust of Russia, Tehran thus welcomed uh, Russia's dramatic escalation of its military operations in Syria from September 2015. Russia's overwhelming and indiscriminate use of air power saved Iran from a dead end in Syria. The moscow tehran damascus hezbollah axis has been instrumental in defeating uh, the Islamic State, at least territorially, if not ideologically and operationally. President Trump has claimed victory against the Islamic State, but the real credit must go to Tehran and Moscow. Tehran is elated, as are Moscow and Hezbollah, by Trump's decision to withdraw the 2,000 American troops stationed in Syria sooner rather than later, which could also potentially signal the end of America's support for the anti-IS Syrian Kurdish People's Protection Units, or YPG. The withdrawal would be a public acknowledgement that the Moscow-Tehran-Damascus-Hezbollah axis is now firmly in control of Syria's future. The US can do little to reverse this reality. It also goes against President Trump's professed determination to expel Iranian and Hezbollah fighters from Syria, although he has made no reference to the Russian presence, lending weight to, uh, to the accusation that he is vulnerable to Moscow. This is all cold comfort for Israel, which views Iran as its main security threat, but pleasing for Turkey. President Tayyip Erdogan's dissatisfaction with Turkey's NATO allies, especially with the, uh, the United States, and his castigation of the YPG as a terrorist organization have injected a new dynamism into the Russian-Iranian axis. Although opposed to the Assad regime, Ankara has leaned increasingly towards Moscow and Tehran and sees in this alliance an opportunity to crush the YPG as a potential threat to, Tur to Turkey. Erdogan, whose relations with Israel are also strained, has not really taken on board Trump's ultimatum either to pre uh, protect the Syrian Kurds or face economic devastations, which has further soured relations between the two NATO allies. 
Although the recent loss of the major cities and by-elections by Erdogan's ruling party may impose restrictions on what President Erdogan can do from this point. President Trump reportedly also wants to reduce America's troop deployment in Afghanistan, seeing no value in fighting a never-ending and unwinnable war. The United States and its allies have been building have been battling in Afghanistan for more than 17 years, with little or no success in bringing stability and security to the country, let alone achieving the democratic transformation that the Bush administration had initially promised the Afghan people to deliver. The United States partners on the the United States partner on the ground, that is the Afghan government, remains weak, divided, and, and dysfunctional and permeated by corruptions and malpractices. Meanwhile, their hardline Islamist opponents, led by the Taliban, have maintained a robust insurgency. Since the departure of most of the US and allied troops, who once numbered about 147,000 more than four years ago, the Afghan security forces have lost more ground. Despite the cover of US air power and counter-terrorism operations by American and allied special forces, the Afghan security situation has progressively declined. The Afghan forces have suffered unsustainable rates of casualties and desertion, and the number of civilians killed and presently shot up to 3,804 in 2018. It appears that President Trump wishes to end the U.S. military involvement, the longest in American history, through a political settlement of the conflict. <clears throat> His special envoy for Afghanistan reconciliation, the Afghan-American Zalmay Khalilzad, is currently engaged in a shuttle diplomacy to forge a national and regional consensus for such a settlement. Treating the Taliban as a potential partner in peace rather than a terrorist group that once harbored Al-Qaeda, Khalilzad has faced an uphill battle to navigate Afghanistan's complex society, politics, and regional rivalries. The Afghan conflict is deeply entangled with the Indo-Pakistan dispute, Iranian-Saudi rivalry, the Saudi-Pakistani strategic partnership, and American-Russian competition, not to mention China's close ties with Pakistan and interests in Afghanistan. Adding to the mess is the entrenchment of the Islamic State's Khorasan branch in, in Afghanistan since 2016. The number of Khorasans or ISIS Khorasan branch fighters num uh, is about 2,000, and they have been responsible for some of the deadliest terrorist attacks in recent years in Afghanistan. Khalilzad has reported progress in his talks with, with the Taliban without the inclusion of the Afghan National Unity Government, which the Taliban has rejected as a puppet. Whatever the outcome, if a final deal is not acceptable to a cross-section of the mosaic population of Afghanistan and regional actors, and if it's not guaranteed by the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, it is most unlikely to bring peace and stability to Afghanistan. Pakistan's close ties with the Taliban have made, a critical, have made it a critical player in Afghanistan, where it has sought to prevent India and Iran from gaining the upper hands. However, this has not prevented Iran from carving out a 
crucial niche of influence in the country. It has forged extensive cross-border economic, trade, cult and cultural ties with Western Afghanistan. Segments of Afghanistan's 15 to 20 percent share minority and a number of strongmen in Afghan politics. Tehran has been one of the largest funders of Afghanistan's reconstruction, financing a large number of projects including at least three pro-Iranian television stations. Today, Iran is Af Afghanistan's largest trading partner. Tehran has also lately opened a direct dialogue with the Taliban, which it, it, which it expects to emerge as a key player in Afghan politics. In this, Tehran shares a common objective with Moscow, which has also hosted several regional conferences over Afghanistan. The participants in Moscow's February 2019 conference included Iran, India, Pakistan, and the Taliban, as well as a number of Afghan influential figures, including former President Hamid Karzai, who has grown very distrustful of the United States, the ex-national security advisor of President Ashraf Ghani, and now his main rival in the, May, uh, in the I think it's going to be July 2019 presidential election, Mohammad Hanif Atmar, in a step with Washington, the Afghan government declined to take part in the conference, and that is in the Moscow conference, calling it uh, an unhelpful to the cause of peace. Tehran has opposed the establishment of long-term American military bases in Afghanistan and warned, their, uh, and warned against their potential use in a U.S.-Iranian conflict. It has worked in tandem with Moscow to frustrate U.S. efforts in Afghanistan as deemed desirable. An American troop reduction in Afghanistan could bolster the role of Tehran-Moscow axis and result in a further unraveling of the Afghan situation at potential strategic cost for the United States, especially in its fight against terrorism. This may suit President Trump's thinking that the regional actors should sort out Afghanistan but it may come at a high geopolitical price for the United States. The Iranian Islamic regime is well entrenched by the forces whose fortunes are knitted to it, or tied to it, and is in a stronger position than Washington has assumed. It is capable of coping with the pressures of sanctions and prevailing at home by coercion if necessary. The regime's response to Trump's policy actions has so far been one of defiance rather than difference. It has pledged to remain committed to the nuclear agreement while strengthening its conventional forces to maintain regional influence for its national defense. It is heartened by the backing of other signatories to the nuclear agreement, that is the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia and China, as well as the European Union and the International Atomic Energy Agency, which have all claimed that Iran has fully complied with the nuclear agreement. They have promised to defy America's extraterritorial measures, barring a third party from doing business with Iran. France. Germany and Britain have established a financial mechanism called INSTEX, trade vehicle, for the purpose of avoiding U.S. sanctions, supporting their companies to continue economic and trade dealings with Iran.
and thus assert European sovereignty in the face of Washington's determination to impose its foreign policy on Europe. Even so, fearing the American retaliation, a number of Western companies have already pulled out of Iran, and many more may follow suit. Iran's fragile economy has come under increased pressure, causing upward strain on the country's highly devalued currency and cost of living for ordinary Iranians, as well as some public unrest which the regime has been able to control and conveniently blame on the United States machinations. The regime is capable of circumventing or reducing the effects of the sanctions on itself, though not on the society. It has expanded ties with Russia and China. Russia has now become not only Iran's major arms supplier, but also a serious investor in the Iranian economy. Russian energy companies have invested as much as $50 billion in oil and gas uh, exploration in Iran including the development of the South Pars fields. Meanwhile, as one of the eight countries exempted from American sanctions, China will continue to depend on Iran for some 11% of its oil imports. China is expanding its activities in Iran, providing funding and technical assistance for projects ranging from railways to hospitals. The Chinese state-owned investment arm, CIT, IC Group established a $10 billion credit line last year, and the Chinese Development Bank promised $15 billion more. Another sanction-exempt country, India, remains committed to maintaining good relations with Iran for two important reasons. One is its reliance on Iran for at least 10% of its national oil consumption. The second is India's partnership with Iran in building the Iranian port of Shabahar on the Gulf. While Pakistan blocks the transit of Indian goods through its territory, Indian use of the new port will allow it to access Afghanistan and Central Asia. The Indian position must concern President Trump. President Trump has urged India to play a greater role in Afghanistan as part of a US exit strategy but he cannot endorse India's strategic involvement with Iran. These factors, plus the European Union's determination to, pre to preserve the nuclear deal in whatever way possible, can soften the blow of US sanctions to a marked extent. Additional relief may come from possible Russian purchases of Iranian oil for sale on the European market as well as Iranian financial activities through Iraq and booming black market operations in the region. The regime will be squeezed financially, but the sanctions are unlikely to destroy it, just as the US-led sanctions failed to, to topple Saddam Hussein. The impact of the sanctions on Iranian society is another story. Yet, however debilitating these sanctions may be on the society, the Iranian public in the face of an American and or Israeli military attack will undoubtedly rally behind the regime as a matter of national and historical duty. They have shown enormous resilience before in the face of outside interventionism, and that spirit has become deeply embedded in their psyche. 
the Islamic regime has sanctimoniously promoted a combination of Iranian sense of fierce nationalism and devotion of many of them to Shiism as important mechanisms of solidifying its position for a time being, although no one can guarantee the future. Thank you very much. I understand that I'm very happy to open the floor for questions, comments. Yes. Now that the Syrian war is kind of winding down, um, what's the role of the Iran in that country? Because uh, they have lots of soldiers, warriors in that country, and also quite a bit of investment, at least uh, from a military point of view. So, so what's going to happen? How, how is it going to wind down the whole process? I think the way I see it is uh, very unlikely that Iran... Sorry, oh, the question was that uh, now that the Syrian conflict